Carol John Daly, The False Burden Combs. I had an outside stateroom on the upper deck of the Far River boat, and ten minutes after I parked my bag there, I knew I was being watched. The boat had already cleared and was slowly making its way towards the batter. I didn't take the shadowing too seriously. There was nothing to be nervous about. My little trip was purely a pleasure one this time. But then a dick getting you smoke is not pleasant under the best of circumstance. And yet I was sure I'd come aboard unobserved. This chap was a new one on me. I thought he must have just picked me up on suspicion, trailed along in the hope of getting something. But I cheeked up my past offenses and there was really nothing they could hold me for. I ain't no crook. Just a gentleman adventurer. and make my living working against the lawbreakers. Not that I work with the police. No, not me. I'm no knight errant either. It just came to me that the simplest people in the world are crooks. They're so set on their own plans to fleece others that they never imagine that they're the simplest sort to do. Why, the best safe cracker in the country, the dread of the police of seven states, will drop all his hard-earned money in three weeks on the racetrack and many a well-thought-of stick-up man will turn out his wad in one evening's crap game. Get the game? I guess I'm just one of the few that sees how soft the lay is. There's a lot of little stunts to tell about if I wanted to give away professional secrets, but the game's too good to spread broadcast. It's enough to say that I've been in card games with four sharpers and did the quartet, and at that, I don't know a thing about cards, and couldn't stack a deck if I was given half the night. But, as I say, I'm an adventurer. Not the kind the name generally means. Those that sit around waiting for a sucker. Or spend their time helping governments out of trouble. Not that I ain't willing to help governments at a certain price, but none have asked me. Those kinds of chaps are found between the pages of a book, I guess. I know. I tried the game just once, and nearly starved to death. There ain't nothing in governments unless you're a politician. And as I said before, I ain't a crook. I've done a lot of business in blackmail cases. I find out a lad that's been blackmailed and then I visit him. He pays me for my services and, like as not, we do the blackmailers every time. You see, I'm the kind of fellow in the center. Not a crook, not a policeman. Both of them look on me with suspicion though the crooks don't often know I'm out after their hides. And the police, well, they run me pretty close at times, but I gotta take the chances. But it ain't a nice feeling to be trailed when you're out for pleasure. So I trot about the deck a few times, whistling, just to be sure there wasn't any mistake. And that bird come a-trampin' after me as innocent as if it was his first job. Then I had dinner and he sits at the next table and eyes me with a wistful longing, like he hadn't made a pinch in a long time, and is just dying to lock somebody up. But I study him too, and he strikes me queer. He ain't got none of the earmarks of a dick. He acts like a lad with money, and orders without even looking at the prices. And it comes to me that I may have him wrong, that he might be one of those fellows that wanted to sell me oil stock. I always fall hard for the oil stock game. There ain't much in it, but it passes the time. 
and let you eat well without paying for it. Along about nine o'clock, I'm leaning over the rail, just thinking, figuring how far the swim to shore is if a fella had to do it. Not that I had any thought of taking to the water, no, not me. But I always like to figure out what the chances are. You never can tell. Well, that bird with the longing eyes cuddles right up and leans over the rail alongside of me. It's a nice night, he says. A first-rate night for a swim. I looked him over carefully out of the corner of my eyes. He sort of straightens up and looks out towards the flickering shore lights. It is a long swim, he says, just like he had the idea in mind. And then he asked me to have a cigar, and it's a quarter one, and I take it. I wonder, would you do me a favor, he says after a bit. This is about what I expected. Con men are full of that kind of gush. Mmm, is all I get off. My game is a waiting one. I came aboard a bit late, he goes right on. I couldn't get a room. Now, I wonder, would you let me take the upper berth in yours? I've been kind of watching you and saw that you were all alone. Kind of watching me was right. And now he wanted to share my room. Well, that don't exactly appeal to me, for I'm banking on a good night's sleep. Besides, I know the story's fishy, for I bought my room aboard and got an outsider. But I don't tell him that right off. I think I'll work him out a bit first. I'm a friend of the purser, I tell him. I'll get you a room. And I make to pass him. No, no, don't do that. He takes me by the arm. It isn't that. Isn't what? I look him straight in the eyes. And there's a look there that I've seen before. And comes in my line of business. As he half turned and I caught the reflection of his eyes under the tiny deck light, I read fear in his face. A real fear. Almost a terror. And then I give it to him straight. Out with what you want, I says. Maybe I can help you, but let me tell you first that there are plenty of rooms aboard the boat. Now, you don't look like a crook. You don't look sharp enough. What's the big idea of wanting to bunk with me? He thought for a moment and then leaned far over the rail and started to talk, keeping his eyes on the water. I'm in some kind of trouble. I don't know if I've been followed aboard this boat or not. I don't think so, but I can't chance it. I haven't had any sleep in two nights. While I don't expect to sleep tonight, I'm afraid I may drop off. I don't want to be alone. And you struck me as an easygoing fellow who might... Might like to take a chance on getting bumped off, I cut in. He kind of drew away when I said this, but I let him see right away that perhaps he didn't have me wrong, and you'd like me to sit up and protect you, eh? Well, I didn't exactly mean that, but I, I, I don't want to be alone. Now, if you were a man I could offer money to... He paused and waited. I give him credit for putting the thing delicately leaving the next move to me. I didn't want to scare him off by putting him wise that he'd come within my line of business. 
it might look suspicious to him. And I didn't want him to get the impression that I was a novice. There might be some future money in a job like this, and it wouldn't do to be underrated. I'll tell you what I'll do, I says. I've been all over the world, and done some odd jobs for different South American governments. That always has its appeal. And I'll sit up and keep an eye on you for a hundred bucks. Crude? Maybe. But then I know my game, and you don't. And I can sleep? He chirps, and his eyes sort of brighten up. Like a baby, I tells him. Good, he says, and come to my cabin. So I take the number of his cabin and tell him I'll meet him there as soon as I get my bag. And then I leave him and fetch my bag and put what money I have in the purser's office. For, although I can size up a game right away, a fellow can't afford to take chances. I've run across queerer ducks than this in my time. Twenty minutes later, he's in bed, and we've turned the sign about smoking to the wall and are puffing away on a couple of good cigars. All content, he's paid me the hundred like a man. Two nice new fifties. He just lay there and smoked and didn't talk much and didn't seem as sleepy as I thought he was. But I guess he was too tired to sleep, which is a queer thing, but I've had it lots of times myself. He seemed to be thinking, too, like he was planning something, and I was concerned in it. But I didn't bother him none. I saw what was on his chest, and he didn't seem in a condition to keep things to himself. I thought he'd out with some proposition for me, but I didn't know. I wasn't anxious to travel about and be a nurse to him. That's more of a job for a private detective. But they ain't used over much because they want to know all about your business. And then you're worse off than you were before. At last, he opens up. What's your business? He says. And seeing I got his hundred, there ain't no reason to dodge the question. I up and tells him. I'm a soldier of fortune. He kind of blinks at this and then asks, That means a chap who takes chances for, for a consideration? Certain kind of chances, I qualify his statement. Like this, for instance? Sometimes. But I don't reckon to travel around as a bodyguard, if that's what you're thinking. He laughs like he was more at ease. But I often see them laugh when they're getting ready to send me into the danger that they fear. It's not downright meanness like I used to think when I was younger. It's relief, I guess. I think I can use you, he said slowly. And pay you well, and you won't need to see me again. Oh, I ain't got any particular dislike to you, I tell him. It's only that I like to work alone. Let me hear what you have to offer, and then, well, you can get some sleep tonight anyways. He thought a moment. How much do I have to tell you? He asked. As much or as little as you'd like. The less, the better. But all I ought to know to make things go right for you. Well, then there isn't much to tell. In the first place, I, I want you to impersonate me for the summer, 
or a greater part of it. That's not so easy. I shook my head. It's easy enough, he went on eagerly. I'm supposed to go to my father's hotel on Nantucket Island. Then he leaned out of the bed and talked quickly. He spoke very low and was very much in earnest. They could not possibly know me there. His father was abroad, and he'd not been to Nantucket since he was ten. How old are you? He asked me suddenly. Thirty, I told him. You don't look more than I do. We are much alike, about the same size, same features, and you won't meet anyone I know. If things should go wrong, I'll be in touch with you. And your trouble? I questioned. What should I know about that? That my life is threatened. I've been mixed up with some people whom I'm not proud of. And they threatened to kill you. I stroked my chin. Not that I minded taking the chances, but somewheres I'd learned that a laborer is worthy of his hire. It looked like he was hiring me to get bumped off in his place. Which was all right if I was paid enough. I'd taken such chances before and nothing had come of it. That's nothing to me. Yes, they threatened my life, but I think it's all bluff. I nodded. I could plainly see it was that. So I handed out a little talk. And that's why you paid me a hundred to sit up with you all night. Mind you, I, I don't mind the risk, but I must be paid accordingly. When he saw that it was only a question of money, he opens up considerable. He didn't exactly give me the facts in the case, but he tells me enough, and I learned he'd never seen the parties. The end of it was that he draws up a paper, which asks me to impersonate him and lets me out of all trouble. Of course, the paper wouldn't be much good in a bad jam, but it would help if his old man should return suddenly from Europe. But I don't aim to produce that paper. I played the game fair, and the figure he names was a good one. Not what I would have liked, perhaps, but all he could afford to pay without bringing his old man into the case, which could not be done. Somehow, when we finished talking, I got the idea that he'd been mixed up in a shady deal, bootlegging or something, and a couple of friends had gone to jail on his evidence. There were three others from Canada who were coming on to get him, the three he'd never seen. But it didn't matter much to me. I was just to show them that he wasn't afraid, and then when they called things off, or got me, all was over. Personally, I did think that there was a lot of bluff in the whole business, but he didn't, and it wasn't my game to wise him up. It was a big hotel I was going to for the summer, and if things got melodramatic, why, I guess I could shoot as good as any bootlegger that ever robbed a church. They're hard guys, yes, but then I ain't exactly a cake eater myself. An hour or more talk in which I learn all about his family and the hotel and Burton Combs drops off for his first real sleep in months. The next morning, we part company in his stateroom and I taxied over to New Bedford. He thinks that's better than taking the train because there's a change of cars in the open country 
He don't want me to drop too soon. There are only about ten staterooms on the little tub that makes the trip from New Bedford to Nantucket, and I have one of them, which is already reserved in Burton Combs's name. After taking a walk about the ship, I figure that there ain't no desperate Desmonds aboard, and having earned my hundred the night before, I just curl up in that little cabin and hit the hay. Five hours, and not a dream disturbed me. And when I come on deck, there's Nantucket right under our nose. And we're rounding the little lighthouse that stands on the point leading into the bay. There's a pile of people on the dock. And they sure did look innocent enough. I take a stretch and feel mighty good. From some of the outfits I see, I know I'm going to travel in class. And I hope that Burton Combs' clothes fit me. For I didn't come away prepared for any social gaiety. But it's early in the season yet, and I'll get a chance to look around before the big rash begins. There's a bus at the dock which is labeled Sea Breeze Inn, and that's my meat. I climb in with about five others and we're off. Up one shady street and down another. Up a bit of hill, and a short straightaway and we're at the hotel. It's a peach, too, with a view of the ocean that would knock your eye out. The manager spots me at once, says he'd know me among a thousand as a combs, which is real sweet of him, considering that he was expecting me, and the others in the bus were an old man, three old women, and a young girl about nineteen. But it wasn't my part to enlighten him and tell him I was on to his flattery. Besides, he was an old bird, probably believed what he said. He was right glad to see me, and tried to look like he meant it and wondered why I hadn't come up there again in all these years, but guessed it was because it was kind of slow, with my father having a hotel at Atlantic City and at Ostend. And he wanted to know if I was going to study the business. Said my father wrote him that he'd like to see me interested in the hotel line. I didn't say much. There wasn't no need. Mr. Rollins, the manager, was one of those fussy old parties, and he talked all the way up in the elevator and right into the room. There were about 50 people there all told on the 1st of July, but they kept coming in all the time, and after I was there about two weeks, the place was fairly well crowded. But I didn't make any effort to learn the business, thinking it might hurt young Combs, who didn't strike me as a chap who would like any kind of work. There was one young girl there, the one that came up in the bus with me, Marion St. James, and we had quite some times together. She was young and full of life. I wanted to be up and doing all the time. And we did a great deal of golf together. Then there was another who took an interest in me. She was a widow and a fine looker. And it was her first season there. I thought that she was more used to playing Atlantic City. For she didn't look like the usual run of staunch New England dames. Sort of out of place. She looked to me to trot her around. But I didn't have the time. There was Marion to be taken about. She was what you'd call a flapper and talked to the moonlight and such rot. But she was real and had a big heart and after all a sensible little head on her shoulders. And she couldn't see the widow a mile and looked upon me as her own special property and blew the widow up every chance she got. 
but the widow, I guess, was bent on making a match, and she was finding the island pretty dead, though the son of John B. Combs, the hotel magnate, looked like a big catch. So you see, my time was fairly well taken up, and I grabbed many a good laugh. I never took women seriously. My game and women don't go well together. Yet that widow was persistent and curious and wanted to know every place Marion and me went and used to keep asking me where we drove to nights. For the kid and me did a pile of motoring. Yes, I had a car. A nice little touring car came with the Burton Combs moniker. Marion was different. She was just a slip of a kid, stuck up in a place like that, and it was up to me to show her a good time. I kind of felt sorry for her, and then she was pretty, and a fellow felt proud to be seen with her. All the time I kept an eye peeled for the bad men. I wondered if they'd come at all, and if they did, I thought that they would come in the busy season, when they wouldn't be noticed much. But that they'd come at all, I very much doubted. And then they came, the three of them. I knew them the very second they entered the door. They were dolled right up to the height of fashion, just what the others were wearing. But I knew them. They just didn't belong. Maybe the others didn't spot them as outsiders, but I did. They were no bluff either. I've met all kinds of men in my day, bad and worse. And these three were the real thing. It came to me that if these gents were bent on murder, I'd better be up and doing. And that island boasted that it had never had a real murder. Yeah, it sure did look like all records were going to be broken. One of them was a tall, skinny fellow. He looked more like a real summer visitor than the others. But his mouth gave him away. When he thought he was alone with the others, he talked through the side of it. A trick which is only found in the underworld on the track. One of the others was fat and looked like an ex-bartender. And the third, I should say, was just a common jailbird that could cut a man's throat with a smile. The tall, skinny one was the leader, and he was booked as Mr. James Farrow. He made friends with me right off the bat. Didn't overdo it, you know. Just gave me the usual amount of attention that most of the guests showed towards the owner's son. He must have read a book about the island, for he tried to tell me things about the different points of interest like he'd been there before. But he had a bad memory, like on dates and things. Marion gave me the dope on that. She knew that island like a book. I didn't have much doubt as to who they were, but I checked them up, liking to make sure. I didn't know just what their game was. I didn't see the big idea of wanting to bump me off. If they wanted money, I could catch their point, but they seemed well supplied with the ready. Yes, sir. I looked this pharaoh over, and he's a tough bird, and no mistake. Then I've seen him just as tough before and pulled through it. Besides, I hold a few tricks myself. They don't know I'm on, and they don't know that I'm mighty quick with the artillery myself. And that gun is always with me. It ain't like I only carry it when I think there's trouble coming. I always have it. You see, a chap in my line of work makes a lot of bad friends. 
You can't tell when one of them is going to bob up and demand an explanation. But they all find out that I ain't a bird to fool with, and I'm just as likely to start the fireworks as they are. Nearly every night after dinner, I'd take the car and Marion and me would go for a little spin around the island. I don't know when I ever enjoyed anything so much, and sometimes I'd forget the game I was playing and think that things were different. I've met a pile of women in my time, but none like Marion nor near like her. Not since the days that I went to school, and that's a memory only. Well, we'd just drive about and talk. She'd ask me about the different places I'd been to. I could hold my own there, for I've been all over the world. Then, one night, about ten days after the troop arrived, I get a real scare. We'd been over Sconset Way, but are driving home along about 9.30 when, zip, there's a whiz in the air and a hole in the windshield. Then there's another zip, and I see Marion jump. It's nothing new to me. I knew that sound right away. It's a noiseless gun, and someone's taken a couple of plugs at us from the distance. Well, it ain't my cue to stop, so I speed up, and it's pretty near town before I slow down beneath a lamp and turn to Marion. There's a little trickle of blood running down her cheek. She's pretty white, but she ain't hurt any. It's just a scratch, and I stop in the drugstore and get some stuff and bathe it off. She's a mighty game little kid. Don't shake a bit and act nervous. But I'm unsteady for the first time in my life. My hand shook. I wouldn't have been much good on a quick draw then. But later I would. For I was mad, bad, mad, if you know what that is. I see that all the danger ain't mine. Not that I think they meant to get Marion. But I'd brought the kid into something. And all because she kind of liked me and I took her around. On the way back to the hotel, I buck up and tell her that it must have been some of the natives hunting the hares, not to say anything about it, but that I would speak to the authorities in the morning. She just looked at me funny. I knew that she didn't believe me, but she let it go at that. If that's all you want to tell me, Bert, why, all right. I shan't say a word to anyone. You can trust me. That was all. Neither of us spoke again until we reached the hotel and I'd parked the car under the shed at the side, and we were sitting at the bottom of the steps by a little side entrance. And then she turned and put her two tiny hands up on my shoulders, and the paleness had gone from her face, but just across her cheek where the bullet had passed was the smallest streak of vivid red. You can trust me, Bert, she said again. There seemed to be a question in her voice. Of course I trust you, Marion, I answered. And my voice was husky and seemed to come from a distance. It all happened very suddenly after that. Her head was very close. I know, for her soft hair brushed my cheek. I think that she leaned forward, but I know that she looked up into my eyes and that the next moment I'd leaned down and kissed and held her so a moment. So we stood, and she did not draw away, and I made no movement to release her. We were alone there, very much alone. Then there was a sudden chug of a motor, 
a second's flash of light, and I'd opened my arms and Marion was gone, and I stood alone in the blackness. So the spell of Marion's prince was broken, and I stood silently in the shadow as Pharaoh and his two companions passed and entered the hotel lobby. Had they seen us? Yes, I knew that they had, for they smiled as they passed. Smiled, and never knew that they'd passed close to death. For at that moment it was only the press of a trigger that lay between them and eternity. The curtain had been rung up on the first act, and the show was on. Before I could sleep easy at night, for the danger was mine, and I thought little of it. But now I felt it was another's, and, well, I resolved to bring things to a head that night. Ten minutes later, I went to my room, but not to bed. I put my light out and sat in the room until about twelve o'clock. At that time, the hotel was as quiet as death. Then I stepped out of my window and climbed down the fire escape which led to the little terrace which overlooked the ocean. I knew just where Pharaoh's room was, and I walked along the terrace until I was under it, and then swung myself up the fire escape and climbed to the third story. His window was open, and thirty seconds later I dropped into the room and was seated on the end of Pharaoh's bed. Then I switched on the light and waited till he woke up. Guess he didn't have much fear of me, for he slept right on for another five minutes. And then he kind of turned over and blinked and opened his eyes. He was awake fast enough then, for he was looking in the mean end of my automatic. He was quick-witted, too, for he rubbed his eyes with one hand while he let the other slip under his pillow. And then I laughed, and he drew it out empty, and sat bolt upright in bed, and faced the gun. Pharaoh, I says... You were mighty near to going out tonight. And if I hadn't already lifted that gun of yours, I'd have popped you then. And I half wished that I'd let his gun stay there. For then it would have been an excuse to let him have it. A poor excuse, but still an excuse. It's hard to shoot a man when he ain't armed and prepared. But it's another thing to shoot when he's reaching for a gun, and it's your life or his. Then you can let him have it with your mind easy. He was a game bird, was Pharaoh, for he must have had plenty to think about in that moment. You see, he couldn't tell just what was coming to him, and from his point of view it must have looked mighty bad. But he started right in the talk. Told me the chances I was taking. I couldn't possibly get away with it. He didn't waste any time in bluffing and pretending surprise at seeing me sitting there with a gun. I give him credit now for understanding the situation. But I stopped his wind. Shut up, I says. And he caught the anger in my eyes and in my voice. And he shut, which was good for him. For chap can't tell for sure what he's gonna do when he's seeing red and has the drop on a lad that he figures needs killing. Then I did a bit of talking. I told him what had taken place that night. I knew it was his doing, and he nodded and never tried to deny it. You killed my brother, 
he says. For he died in trying to break jail a few months ago. The jail where you sent him. So I killed your brother, eh? Well, every man's entitled to his own opinion. Now, I don't know about the killing of your brother. But I'll tell you this, my friend. I come mighty near to killing you. And I don't miss either. And I don't crack windshields. And I don't go for to hit innocent parties. I could see that he was kind of surprised at the way I talked. For I wasn't especially careful about my language like I had been about the hotel. Unlike what he would expect from the real Burton Combs. But I could see that he kind of smacked his lips at the mention of the girl. And he knew that he had a hold on me there. But I didn't care what was on his chest. I knew that the morning would see the end of the thing. One way or the other. I'm going to give you until the 6.30 boat tomorrow morning to leave the island, I told him. And I was not bluffing either. After man had his warning, it's good ethics to shoot him down. At least I see it that way. That is, if he needs it bad, and you happen to have my code of morals. Also, if you want to live to a ripe old age. What then? He sort of sneers. Seeing as how he wasn't going over the hurdles right away, he thinks I'm a bit soft. In the same position, his own doubt about shooting me would be the chances of a getaway. And the chances were not good on that island, unless you'd made plans in advance. Perhaps he had. I didn't know then, for I hadn't seen any boat hanging about the harbor. What then? He sneers again. Then... I says very slowly, and thinking of Marion. Then, I'll cop you off at breakfast tomorrow morning. Yes, as soon as that boat leaves the dock, I'll be gunning for you, Mr. James Farrow. And as sure as you're not a better shot than you were tonight out on the moors, you'll go join your brother. With that, I turned from the bed and unlocking his door, walked out of his room. The temptation to shoot was too great. But I didn't go to bed that night. I just put out my light and sat smoking in my room. Smoking and thinking. So I spent the second night that summer awake. I knew that the three would meet and talk it over. I know I'd get to work. But I just sat there half facing the door and half facing the window, with my gun on my knees, waiting. How nice it would be if they would only come through the window. It'd be sweet then, and what a lot of credit I'd get as Burton Combs protecting his father's property. They meant real business, all right, for I see now that there was sentiment behind the whole thing. Sentiment and honor. That peculiar honor of the underworld which goes and gets a squealer. Combs had evidently squealed, and Farrow's brother had paid the price, and Combs went free. Position and evidence and politics had done the trick, I guess. I heard the clock strike two, and then 2.30, and then there was a footstep in the hall, and I turned and faced the door, and then there come a light tap at the door.
This sure was a surprise. I didn't turn on the electric light, but just went to the door and swung it open suddenly and stepped back. No one came in. Then I heard a kind of a gasp, a woman's voice. The first thing I thought of was Marion. And then I see the widow in the dim hall light. Her hat was all down, and she'd thrown a light robe about her. She was excited, and her eyes were wide open, and she looked frightened. It's Marion, little Miss and James, she sobbed. She's in my room now, and it was terrible, and I think, I think she fainted. And then she stopped and kind of choked a bit. Right away it came to me that this gang had done something to her, and I wished I'd settled the whole thing earlier in the evening when I had the chance, but... Come, I said to the widow, and took her by the arm and led her down the hall to her room. The door was open, and gun in hand I rushed into the room ahead of her. There on the bed! She gasped behind me. I turned to the bed, and it was empty. And then I knew. But it was too late, for I was trapped. There was a muzzle of a gun shoved into the middle of my back and a hard laugh. And then Pharaoh spoke. Throw that gun on the bed and throw it quick. And, and I threw it and threw it quick. I was done. I should have suspected the widow from the first day I laid eyes on her, for she didn't belong. Yes, and she was this gang's come on, and me, who had never fallen for women, was now caught by women. A good one and a bad one. One whom I wanted to protect, and one who knew it. Now you see how the game is played. Neither a good nor a bad woman can help you in my sort of life. And yet, I would take any chance for that little Marion, who used to stand out on the moors. But Pharaoh was talking. And now, Mr. Combs, we meet again, and you're the one to do the listening. We're going to take you for a little motor ride. That is, you're going to come out with me to meet my friends. We don't intend to kill you. That is, if you've proved yourself a man and come along quietly. There's some information I want from you. Oh, and thanks for the return of my gun. He finished as he picked the gun off the bed. Yes, it was his gun, and mine was still in my pocket, and I'd have shot him then. Only I knew that the widow was covering me. Come. Pharaoh turned and, poking the gun close to my ribs, he induced me to leave the room with him. If you make a noise, you go, he told me as we walked down the long, narrow hall to the servant's stairs. But I didn't intend to cry out. He would just move that gun of his the least little bit. I could draw and shoot. I almost laughed. The thing was so easy. The LC is lying right off the point, he went on, as we approached the little shed where my car was kept. You remember the LC? It used to be your boat. The government remembers it too. 
but they don't know it now, nor would you. But enough of that. Climb into your car, we'll use that for our little jaunt. We'd reached the little shed now, and I climbed into the car. I was waiting for a chance to use my gun, but he watched me like a hawk. And then he laughed. A queer, weird laugh which had the ring of death in it. I drove as he said, and we turned from the hotel and out onto the moors, that long stretch of desolate road that leads across the island. And then he made me stop the car and stand up. I'll take your gun, he said as he lifted it from my hip. We won't need more than one gun between us tonight. For if it comes to shooting, I'll take care of that end of it. He threw the gun into the back of the car, where I heard it strike the cushion of the rear seat and bounce to the floor. We drove on in silence. He never said a word, but I felt as clearly as if he had told me so, that he was driving me to my death. The gun he had let me carry until we were safe away. Perhaps he thought that without it I might have cried out in the hotel, but this I shall never know. That he knew all along I had it, I have no doubt. More than once I was on the edge of telling him that I was not the man he thought I was, for it looked as though my game was up. But he wouldn't have believed me. Besides, my little agreement with Combs was back in my hotel room. Not a soul did we pass as we sped over the deserted road. No light but the dulled rays of the moon broke the darkness all around us. Half hour or more, and then suddenly I see a car on the road as the moon pops out from behind the clouds. And then Pharaoh spoke, and there was the snarl of an animal in his voice. Here's where you stop, he growled, and here's where you get yours. They'll find you out here in the morning, and they can think what they want. We'll be gone. And the killing of a rat like you is the only business I've got on the moors this night. I'd pulled up short in the center of the road now, for a big touring car which I recognized as Pharaoh's would stretch across our path, blocking the passage. In it, I clearly saw his two friends. It was death now, sure, but I made up my mind to go out as gracefully as possible. And when he ordered me to open the door, I leaned over and placed my hand upon the seat, and it fell on the cool muzzle of a revolver. Yes, my fingers closed over a gun, and I knew that that gun was mine. Thrills in life, yes, there are many, but I guess that that moment was my biggest. I didn't stop to think how that gun got there. I didn't care. I just tightened on it and felt the blood of life pass quickly through my body, if you know what I mean. I couldn't turn and shoot him, for he had his pistol pressed close against my side. What he feared, I don't know. But I guess he was just one of those over-careful fellows who didn't take any chances. Open that door and get out. He ordered again as he gave me a dig in the ribs. 
I leaned over again and placed my hand on the handle of the door, and then I got a happy thought. I can't open it, I said, and I let my voice tremble and my hand shake. But in my left hand, I now held my gun and thanked my lucky stars that I was left-handed, for I knew if I got the one chance that I hoped for, it would have to be a perfect shot. White livid after all, he muttered, and he stooped over and placed his left hand upon the handle of the door. His right hand still held the gun close to my side, and his eyes were watching my every movement. I'd never seen a man so careful before. I couldn't pull the gun up and shoot, for he would get me at the very first movement. Although I was tempted, I waited. The other two sat in the car ahead and were smoking and laughing. Of course, I knew that if I once stepped out in the moonlight with the gun in my hand that it was all up. But I waited, and then... The door really stuck a bit, for the nights are mighty damp on that island, and it was that dampness which saved my life. For just the fraction of a second, he took his eyes off me, just a glance down at the door with a curse on his lips. And with that curse on his lips, he died. For as he turned the handle, I give it to him right through the heart. And I don't miss at that range, no, not me. The door flew open, and he tumbled out on the road, dead. I don't offer no apologies, for it was his life or mine, and as I said, he tumbled out on the road, dead. Another fellow writing might say that things weren't clear after that, but they were clear enough to me, because I never lose my head. That's why I've lived to be thirty and expect to die in bed. Yeah, things are always clear when clearness means a little matter of life or death. Those other chaps were so surprised at the turn things had taken that I jumped out to the road and winged one of them before they knew what had happened. But the other fellow was quick, and it started shooting and I felt a sharp pain in my right shoulder. But one shot was all that he fired, and then I had him. One good shot was all I needed and he went out. I don't go for to miss. I didn't take the time to examine to see if they were dead. I'm not an undertaker, and it wasn't my business. I guess they were, but if they wasn't, I didn't intend to finish the job. I'm not a murderer, either. Then there were a couple of houses not so far off, and I could see lights. Lights that weren't there before in both of them. Even on a quiet island like that, you can't start a gun party without disturbing some of the people. I just turned my car around and started back to the hotel. Twenty minutes later, I'd parked it in the shed and gone to my room. As far as I knew, no one could know what had taken place on the lonely moor that night. I played doctor to my shoulder. It wasn't so very bad either, though it pained a lot but the bullet had gone through the flesh and passed out. I guess a little home treatment was as good as any doctor would do. Then the morning came. My arm was not so good. But I dressed and went down to breakfast and saw the manager. And he told me that the widow had gone on the early boat. 
I don't think she was a real widow, but that she was the wife of one of those chaps. Pharaoh, I guess. But that didn't bother me none. She was a widow now, all right. And then, about nine o'clock, news of the three dead men being found away off on the road came in. And I know I got all three of them. There was a lot of talk, and newspaper men from the city came over, and detectives, and one thing and another. The morning papers of the following day had it all in, and wild guesses as to how it happened. The three were recognized by the police as notorious characters. And then it got about that a rum runner had been seen off the east shore that very morning. The general opinion seemed to be that there had been a fight among the pirates, and that these three men got theirs, which suited me to a T. I would have beat it, only that would have looked mighty queer, and honestly, I didn't see where they had a thing on me. I thought the best thing to do was sit tight. For nearly a week, I sat. And then the unexpected, unexpected by me at least, happened. The widow sent a telegram to the Boston police, and they came down and nailed me. You see the writing on the wall? Keep clear of the women. A dick from Boston dropped in one morning, and I knew him the minute he stepped foot in the hotel. And I also knew that he was after me, though at the time I didn't wise up as to how he was on. But he wasn't sure of himself, and he had the manager introduce him to me. Then he talked about everything but the killing. And of course, he was the only one at the hotel that left that topic out of his conversation. And that was his idea of hiding his identity. But he was sharp enough at that, and hadn't gone about the island more than a couple days before he stuck this and that together, and had enough on me to make the charge. But he was a decent sort of chap, and came up to my room late at night with the manager, and put the whole thing straight up to me told me about the widow's telegram that I was under arrest, that I'd better get hold of the best lawyer that money could buy, for I was in for a rough time. He was right, and I knew that I was in a mighty bad hole. But I also knew that there would be plenty of money behind me when the whole thing came out, and money is a mighty good thing to get out of a hole with. So I played the game, and I never let on that I wasn't the real Burton Combs. They locked me up and they notified my adopted father. And the next morning the news was shouted all over the world. For John B. Combs cut a big figure and his son's arrest made some music. Then the Combs lawyer, Harvey Benton, came up to see me. And the minute he set eyes on me, the cat was out of the bag. And I up and tells him the whole story. Though I didn't give him the reason for Combs being frightened. Just said he was threatened by these three rum runners. I felt that my playing the game fair would give me a better standing with the Combses and help loosen up the old purse strings. Young Combs wasn't such a bad fellow either, for the next day he was down to see me and ready to tell the whole story and stand up for me. Then we moved over to the mainland and I couldn't get out on bail and the prosecuting attorney started to have my record looked up. And I can tell you that after that things didn't look so rosy. It all goes to prove that a clean sheet helps a man, though mine wasn't nothing to be ashamed of, but I will admit that it looked pretty sick on the front page of the newspapers. Then John B. Combs himself arrives and comes up to see me. 
He listens to my story at first with a hard, cold face. But when I come to the part where I have to shoot quick or die, his eyes kind of fill, and I see he's thinking of his son, and the chances he would have had in the same place, and how if I hadn't got them, they would have got Burton. Then he stretches forth his hand and grasps mine, and I see it would have been better if Burton had taken his father into his confidence in the first place. He asked the old boy was a good scout, and he told me that he loved his son, that I'd saved his son's life and he didn't care what my past had been, and he would see me through this thing that his son had gotten me into, even if it cost a fortune. That was a funny thing all around. It was me, the sufferer, comforting the old boy and telling him that it was nothing. Just like the chair looking me in the face was an everyday fair. I didn't much like the idea of his being so sad, for it gives me the impression that my chances are not so good, and I'm going to have to pay the price for his son, which ain't nothing to sing about. But it was my word against the word of the gang, and they being dead wouldn't have much to say. Yes, I was indicted all right and held for the grand jury. First-degree murder was the charge. Then come await with my lawyers, trying to get a hold of some farmer who might have seen something of the shooting and would corroborate my story. Then comes the trial. You would have thought that the district attorney had a personal grudge against me all his life, that all the politicians in one-horse newspapers were after his job. He paints up those three crooks like they were innocent young country girls that had been trapped by a couple of designing men. And he tells how Burton Combs done them in a shady deal. And when he feared they was going to tell the authorities, he up and hires a professional murderer to kill him. I tell you, it made a mighty good story. And he told it well. One could almost see those three cherubs going forth in childlike innocence to be slaughtered by the butcher. Which is me. And he punched holes in my story especially that part about how I put my hand down and found the gun on the seat. And he said that I took them out on some pretense and shot them down in cold blood, quick shooting being my business and shady deals my living. When he got through with my story, it was as full of holes as a sieve. And I had a funny feeling around the chest because I thought anyone could see what a rotten gang this was and what a clean living young fellow I was. For my lawyer painted me up as a young gentleman what went around the world trying to help others. Just when I think things are all up and the jury are eyeing me with hard, stern faces comes a surprise. You see, I'd never told a soul about Marion being in the car with me when that gang first started the gunplay out on the Sconset Road. You see, I didn't see the need of it. Well, somehow I just couldn't drag her into it. Weakness, I'll admit for a fellow facing death should fight with every weapon he can grab. And there's that thing about women cropping up again. But somehow there in that stuffy courtroom, her innocent face and those soft, childlike eyes come up before me. And I see she might help me a lot with the simple truth about the bullet that crossed her cheek. And while I was thinking about marrying and telling myself that my goose was cooked, comes that big surprise. My lawyer calls a witness. It's Marion St. James. Gad. My heart just stops beating for the moment. She was very quiet and very calm. 
but her voice was low and the jury had to lean forward to catch what she said. She told about the ride that night and how the bullet broke the windshield and scratched her cheek. And then came the shock. I was just dreaming there and thinking of the trouble I'd caused her when I heard what she was saying and I woke up quick. After I left Mr. Combs, I called him Burton, and she pointed down at me. I went upstairs, but I couldn't sleep. I was thinking about what had happened out on the moor that night. Of course, I didn't believe what Burton had told me about the hairs. And then I remembered the look on his face as he bathed off my cheek. And it was terrible to see, and... And then she paused a moment and wiped her eyes and went on. After a bit, I looked out the window, and I could see the little shed where Bert kept his car, and I just caught the glimpse of a man going into it. I thought it was Bert, and that he was going to drive out on the moor, and... Oh, I don't know what I thought, but I was frightened, and didn't want him to go, and I just rushed out of my room and down the back stairs and out towards the shed. I was just in time to see a big touring car pull out, and two men were in it. Then I waited a minute and went and looked into the shed and Bert's car was still there. I don't know why, but I was frightened and I climbed into the little touring car and sat down in the back and kind of rested. Then I heard someone coming and I hid down the back of the car and pulled some rugs up over me and waited. And why did you wait? My lawyer asked her kindly. I just thought that I'd be able to help Mr. Burt, and I wanted to help him. Was there any other reason? Yes, I thought that he was going into trouble for me, and... and... She paused a moment. Yes, the lawyer encouraged. And I wanted to help him. She said the words so low that you could hardly catch them. But the lawyer didn't ask her to repeat them. I guess he thought it went over better that way. And it sure did, at least with me. For I knew what she meant. And then she went on. Pretty soon, Mr. Combs came along. For she kept calling me Burton Combs. And that big man was with him. The one they called Mr. Farrow. I looked carefully up over the door. For it was very dark where I was. And I saw that Mr. Farrow had a gun in his hand that he held it close up against Mr. Combs's back. And he talked rough, but too low to understand. And then they both climbed into the front of the machine. I did not know just what I could do, but I thought, oh, I don't know what I thought, but I did so want to help him, and I was just too scared to cry out. And then they started off, and after they were a little way out in the country... Mr. Farrow made Burton stop the car and stand up while he searched him. And he found his revolver and took it from him and threw it into the back of the car. It landed on the seat and bounced off and I stretched out my hand and took hold of it and held it there under the rugs. I didn't know what to do with it at first for I'd never fired a gun. And then I heard Mr. Farrow say that he was going to kill Mr. Combs. I was terribly frightened. But I leaned up and stretched my hand over the seat 
and tried to give the pistol to Mr. Combs. But Mr. Farrow turned suddenly, and I became frightened and dropped the pistol. And then I dropped back in the car again. But I was half out of the covers and afraid to pull them over me, for the car had stopped again, and I had a feeling that someone was looking down at me. Then I heard them moving in front of the car, and I looked up, and I saw that Mr. Farrow had his gun pressed close against Mr. Combs' side, and that Mr. Combs was trying to open the door. Then came the sudden report, and I think that I cried out, for I thought the bird was shot, and then came several more shots, one right after another, and I looked out and I saw Mr. Combs standing in the moonlight and a man beside another big car firing at him, and then the man fell and... She broke off suddenly and started to cry. And after that, my lawyer smiled at her. I climbed back under the robes and Mr. Combs drove me back to the hotel, but he never knew I was there. Well, that just about settled it, I guess. The room was in more or less of an uproar. You ought to have heard my lawyer. Now I know why good lawyers get so much money. He started in, and he sure did paint that gang up mighty black. And now I was the innocent boy, led into danger by these hardened criminals. And he showed how the gun was held close to my side when I fired. And if that isn't self-defense... And good American pluck, I'd like to ask you, what in heaven's name is? And that's the whole show. One hour later, I was a free man. Everybody was shaking hands with me. And from a desperate criminal, I'd suddenly become a hero. And I guess that Marion had done it. Then old Combs came up to me and shook me by the hand and told me how glad he was that I was free. What a plucky little thing Marion was, and how I owed my life twice over to her. And then he offered me a job. Imagine, another job for the Combs family. But this was different. There is too much good in you to lead the life you've been leading. You may think that it's all right, but there will be others that won't. I can offer you something that will be mighty good. But I shook my head. I guess I'll stick to my trade, I said. I've had good offers before. And in my line, this little notoriety won't hurt none. It's a good position, he says, not paying much attention to what I was getting off. The right people will be glad to know you. There'll be enough money in it to get married. I started to shake my head again when he handed me a note. Read this note, and then let me know. Not another word until you've read it. He smiles. I took the little blue envelope and tore it open, and it was from Marion. I would like to see you again when you take that position of Mr. Combs. I guess I read that simple sentence over a couple dozen times before I again turned to Mr. Combs. I guess I'll take that job, if it pays enough to get married on, was all that I said. There ain't no explanation unless... unless I wanted to see Marion again myself. That's all.
unless to warn you that it would be kind of foolish to take too seriously anything I said about keeping clear of the women. So that was a story by Carol John Daly called The False Burton Homes. I'm going to say something about that story. By the by, this is Tony Walker here of uh, the uh, kind of organiser these days and sometime narrator of the classic Detective Stories podcast. You know, I, as compared to the other podcasts, the classic Ghost Stories, where I do all the narration myself. And this one, I decided I wanted to branch out and give other people a chance Um uh, because lots of people have got lots of, you know, lots of people, or not lots maybe, but a good number of people have really good voices, and I'm kind of searching for uh, the the greatest voice for a particular story. I wanted an American voice, an authentic American voice for an authentic American story, particularly the hard-boiled genre. I was saying somewhere else, somebody was saying about accents, and um, I was saying, you know, I think uh, it is such an American genre that uh, it has to be authentic, I think. Anyway, that was narrated by Kasper um, Stockhausen. Uh, he says to pronounce it how I want. He lives in Amsterdam, actually, but he sounds pretty American to me. Um, and he's doing, and I would say, I said I would uh, link to some other things he's doing. He's, he's taking part in a audio drama at the moment, which you can hear, called Leaving Corvat. And there's a link, as I said, in the show notes. He's also worked on the Decca tapes uh, and also recently did a cameo in a Dracula retelling called Redracula. He says he hasn't been voice acting very long, but would love to do more. So if you want to hire him, uh, you know, get in touch. If you go to the, um, the links, I've, you can either email me uh, or go to those links there. So let's say something about, um, first of all, Carol John Daly. So Carol uh, John Daly... Clearly of Irish origin uh, or uh, roots in, in, from his name, uh, was born on September 14th, 1889 in Yonkers, New York. He attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City. Before turning to writing, he was an usher, projectionist and an actor and opened the first movie theatre in Atlantic City, New, New Jersey. Dashiell Hammett, who we featured on the thing, the other, the other hardball guy we featured, uh, actually worked as a Pinkerton detective before writing about similar, if exaggerated, fictional detectives. Daly was anything but a hard-boiled anti-hero in real life. He was 33 years old before his first crime story was published, and up to that point lived quietly in the suburb of White Plains, New York. As Lee Server, uh, author of the Encyclopedia of Pulp Fiction Writers, put it, he was afraid of cold weather and dentists. His violent, tough-talking detective stories were a fantasy outlet for this mild-mannered man. Um, so he, he is, however, considered vital to the history of the hardballed crime genre, less for the quality of his writing than the fact that he was the first writer to combine all the elements of the style, which we'll talk about a little bit. And from that, we now recognize as a dark, violent, hardboiled story, as we know now. It was enormously popular in his time. And these no-nonsense tough guy detective stories have gone on to influence not only contemporaries such as Dashiell Hammett, but Mickey Spillane and dozens of other writers. Daly's popularity in his day was considered worth a 15% boost to sales. 
A lot of these stories were published in Black Mask, which was the classic pulp detective stories uh, magazine in the 2030s and so on. Uh, and the uh, show Daily was the most popular writer ahead of uh, Dashiell Hammett and uh, Earl Stanley Gardner. Today, his writing is often considered something between quaint and camp, in the words of the genre historian William D. D'Andrea. Lee Server has noted, however, that comparing Daly with his better-remembered successes may be unfair, and that Daly's most crunch, crucial influence on the genre was his rejection of what was mainstream detective fiction instead of the mannered aristocratic sleuths of drawing-room mysteries. And we've had those, haven't we? Daly was influenced by avenging vigilantes of Western. So what we see, and he is considered, and, and the first hard-boiled story is considered to be this one, The False Burton Coombs, which was published in Black Mask in December. 1922, uh, followed closely by It's All in the Game, April 23 in Black Mask, and the P.I. story, Three Gun Terry, I like him, uh, Black Mask, May 1923. Um, Daily stories are less concerned with updating Victorian-era drawing room mysteries than Wild West stories, so I think this is really crucial for... When we, um, we're reading out detective stories and we see the the Victorian detectives and then coming through, the great master of the genre, Sherlock Holmes... But then going on to people like Agatha Christie, and we have that very English-British um, detective the um, theme. But it's also found in the cosy mysteries in the US as well. And the story is, and those stories, there is a mystery. A murder happens, and, it, and we don't know who did it. And uh, our brainiac, um, actually larger-than-life detective, deduces it, classically Sherlock Holmes, but others as well. And when you've listened to stories on this uh, channel, you'll have heard that. Very often in the early stories, what we find is we couldn't ourselves have worked it out from the evidence we had because the super detective is withholding evidence from us. It isn't revealed to us, the readers, until the denouement. So typically there is a, a postscript or a denouement where the the very, very clever detective um, sets out exactly what had happened. And we go, oh, oh, of course. Oh, how clever you are, you know. So that is definitely, that was the classic detective story. The first detective story, probably Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe, again um, has um, Dupin, the detective, who's extremely clever and works it all out, you know, and it's a very mysterious thing. So we see that mystery thing coming on. And then we get the hard-boiled. And as we see here, this is not so much a mystery. There is a mystery, but not much of a one. Um, it's not actually mysterious at all really the first the first setup is somebody's uh, trailing him and it turns out to be this guy uh, the real burton Coom coombs and um, and then we have the false one who isn't named of course as a person and um th there is no mystery it is far more like a western an adventure you know tough guy and the gunslinger, the tough gunslinger, the man's man gunslinger takes no no nonsense. Girls fall for him. He shoots his way. You know, it's it's in common with like war stories and uh, westerns and the almost the superhero of later adolescent male fantasy, whereby you know I want to be that guy who beats everybody up, who's super cool, and all the girls uh, fall in love with him. You know. And it is a, fa a, a male fantasy figure, I think, you know. I still liked it, maybe because I'm male. Uh, and, um, you know, very different, very different. And then, we, of course, the genre goes forward and we get the combination of later on, like, you know, the Maltese Falcon and all that kind of thing. 
we get we get the hard-boiled, tough Western gunslinger dude who isn't Hercule Poirot, isn't um, Sherlock Holmes. He's he's not a, he's not a t- although Sherlock Holmes can fence and stuff like that. So they're m- men's men, but they're not kind of uh, rough ga- ruffians, you know. They're not ruffians, whereas these these potentially are. Um, and so you see later on they combine the uh, mystery and the tough guy. Whereas this, the first hardball story, it's basically an adventure tough guy adventure story. Let's say something about the the, the key elements of the um, hardball genre. So these are considered the key elements of hard-boiled. First-person narrative, it's told in the first person. A distinctive feature of the hard-boiled novels is the use of the first-person narrative. Uh, This style is recognisable in both literature and film. You think of Chinatown. You know, there it was in Chinatown again. Uh, And that kind of thing. And and uh, that is hard-boiled, isn't it? And and the first Blade Runner had that as well with um, Decker retiring in very noir very hard-boiled he is it's an absolute hard-boiled story they take the voiceover out in the later cuts but i actually preferred it that way so first person often with a narrator commenting on how things are going along colloquial colorful language think of the victorians think of poe think of um even conan doyle uh quite highfalutin language you know literary language really uh, whereas this is street language, even to the extent that the slang used seems very, very dated now. That is always the danger of using slang. I mean, I think a little bit of slang can uh, can add colour, but um, the extensive, thorough use of 1920s slang there. Now, sometimes we think, what's that sound? That sounds odd or even comical. That is the danger. Underworld focus. Um, the true protagonist is the underworld, populated by pimps, sultry ladies, gunslingers, and corrupt cops. Yes, that's here, isn't it? It isn't as prevalent as in some later stories. Strange encounters, hardball fiction is a realm of open doors, a romantic descent into the underworld where anything becomes possible. The night, again, not so prevalent in this, but certainly in later hardball, which later becomes film noir, really. Hardball narratives and and as a crossover into spy stories as well. I may do some spy stories because although they're not they're not um, classically detective, they're very closely related, aren't they? Um, particularly the noir side of things. Philosophical reflection on life and death. Didn't really get that. Life in the hard-boiled hero. The life of the hard-boiled hero is characterised by cigarettes, alcohol, phys- physical confrontations, perpetual lack of sleep, and the use of sharp one-liners. There we've got that. And then another, the final kind of element of hard-boiled noir is the femme fatale. Women play a crucial role being portrayed as mysterious, dangerous, irresistible, smart, and mischievous. The femme fatale becomes a symbol of desire in a complex and urb, uh, urban romantic world with the hero representing the reader captivated in a daydream. The pursuit of the femme fatale is often intertwined with the hero's own potential demise. So, you know, there is a femme fatale in this, but she's just a young lass. She isn't that fatale, if that's a word. Uh, but she's, she's you know, she's rather wholesome, actually. Um, but you can see how she has a key place in the allure and the key, we keep, keep away from the women, that theme of the dangerousness of women, which, of course, ironically, at the end, reader, I married him, you know. By the by, I don't know if you've come across um, a series of um, graphic novels by a guy called Ed Brubaker. He did a series of femme fatale very much in this genre. Obviously, he, he I think, created it in the 2000s, 2010s. Uh, certainly, that's when I read it. And um, 
the femme fatale is the main character there and she is um so it's kind of supernatural in that she keeps she's immortal and she tries to escape her fate but men are drawn to her they can't help falling in love with her and they and she you know they die and she tries to save them but can't that reminded me of course uh, of another story by fritz lieber called the the girl with the hungry eyes where the femme fatale is a kind of vampire uh, but she's very much like this. So it's a very, this, I love this genre. As you know, in the, in the graphic novel, in the, um, the spy story, the third man, the Maltese Falcon, of course, um, Casablanca, you know, all that kind of film side of things. And these stories as well, uh, Dashiell Hammett and this one here, the hardball genre is really one of my loves. Really. And one, one that I can't, I can't do justice narrating because I'm not American. And if I was to pretend to be, it would just fall short, I think. So hence me getting American narrators for this. I'm quite happy to have a stab at most other things, but I think the hard-boiled American has to be an American. Also, it's nice to give other narrators a chance and to introduce you to them. I think you'll agree that Casper is really good. Um, and um, if you like, if you like him, please let me know. If you don't like him, don't be cruel. Uh, I don't like that. I've had some narrators that I've that have come on, and some commenter commenters have been just rude. And uh, you know, if you don't like somebody, you don't you don't have to be brutal. You know, um, um, but if you do like him, tell me, and I'll get him to do some more stuff. Okay, uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm not going to waffle on anymore. Although it is my trademark waffling. Uh, if you're new to the way I do these kind of story podcasts with the story and then the discussion afterwards, and you find you don't, you only like the story, please don't listen to me talking. Just stop. You don't have to go and tell me how crap it is. You just stop listening. Just press stop. And then if if you fall asleep and you wake up to hear me talking, just don't, just, I don't know what to suggest there. Just switch it off. Don't feel you have to write a stern letter. Um, okay, all right, you take care, everybody. Hope you're enjoying my detective stories. If you are, spread the word. Please spread the word. We need to grow. All right. And yeah, um, many more to come. <laughs>